uh, scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Luke in chapter 19, verse 28 to the end of the chapter. That is page 782 in your pew Bible. Uh, Luke chapter 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage in Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he said to the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Is Palm Sunday. And as many churches all around the world are celebrating the events that took place in Jerusalem around this time of year, almost 2,000 years ago. But there in Jerusalem, on that day, the city was hurtling into events that had been predestined in eternity past. The stage was being set for the most important event that ever took place in the history of the universe. Jesus had just caused an uproar by raising Lazarus from the dead. The Passover was at hand, and pilgrims from all over the nation had converged on the city. There was all kinds of speculation as to whether Jesus would show up for the feast or whether he wouldn't. The Pharisees had given instructions that if he was to show his face, he was to be arrested. The chief priests even wanted to kill Lazarus in order to cover up the evidence of who Jesus was. The Romans were worried about rebellion. The people were looking for deliverer. The disciples wanted to rule. The Pharisees were hungry for his blood. But what was really going on on that first Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago when Jesus approached the eastern wall of the city riding on a donkey? 
Now, some of you who are here know the significance of June the 2nd, 1953. Some of you here might even remember that day. It was the day of Queen Elizabeth II's coronation as the Queen of England. And June 30th, sorry, June 3rd of this year marks the beginning of the Queen's Silver Jubilee, 60 years after her coronation. But on that June 2nd, 1953, on a sunny day in London, England, on an intricately carved golden carriage drawn by eight gray horses, the Queen was seated, the future queen. The procession was led by hundreds of soldiers, and the streets were, were surrounded by tens of thousands of cheering supporters. Now, I'm not a royalist, but even as I, as I watched these events on YouTube this past week, it was hard not to get wrapped up in the pomp and the, and the pageantry of what was happening. The whole event was dripping with symbolism. The procession arrived at Westminster Abbey, and Elizabeth entered into the, the chapel of Henry VII, flanked on either side by bishops in the, of the Church of England. And there were, were six pages carrying the train of a robe behind them. And the Archbishop of Canterbury welcomed her to the people, saying, God save Queen Elizabeth. She took her seat on King Edward's chair. This was a, was a throne that has been used to crown kings for 700 years. She solemnly swore to govern the people of the Commonwealth according to the laws of state, the laws of God, the true profession of the gospel, and to maintain Protestant Reformed religion and of the Church of England. With that, she knelt before the altar and swore that she, would, that she would rule according to these things. And she kissed the Bible and said, These things which I have that I have promised, I will perform, so help me God. And the people broke out into singing, God save the Queen. Then a representative of the Church of Scotland came forward and, and presented a Bible to the Queen and said, O oh, gracious Queen, to keep your majesty ever mindful of the law and the gospel of God as the rule for your whole life and government of Christian princes, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. And he continued, Here is wisdom, the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Then there was a, was a communion service, and she was anointed with the sign of the cross on her head and her palms and her breast. And then she was given a cross over an orb that was to represent Christ's rule over the world. And she was given a rod, which was to be the rod of equity and mercy. And then finally she was crowned. And the people again cried, God save the queen. And the archbishop said, God crown you with a crown of glory and righteousness, that having right faith and manifold fruit of good works, you may obtain the crown of an everlasting kingdom by the gift of him whose kingdom endureth forever. Wow. What an incredible service. And so much of it comes from, from God's word. But how many of those kings actually ruled according to God's word? Sadly, those vows that, that Elizabeth had taken on that day were about as long-lived as most marriage vows in our culture today. 
There were very few similarities between the coronation of Queen Elizabeth and the event that we remember on this day. We remember the reality of God's presence in, in both, but their significance was worlds apart. You have to question that, that was this crowning of Elizabeth really in the presence and glory of God? Of course, God is everywhere. But we've seen what's happened to the, the Commonwealth of Britain since that time. It has it waned and waned and waned until the point where, where people are saying that they, they don't even want Charles as king. He's an adulterer. But when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that day, he was not pulled on a golden carriage by royal steeds. He was brought in on a lowly donkey and a borrowed donkey at that. This monarch entered a city full of soldiers, but these soldiers were not there to protect him. These soldiers would eventually kill him. This monarch would wear a crown, but not a crown of gold and jewels. This monarch would wear a crown of thorns. This monarch's coronation was at the hands of religious authorities, but they were not welcoming him. They were about to kill him. The people did shout praises to this monarch, but it was no lasting praise. Just a few days later, the shout of Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, would be replaced by shouts of crucify him. But even though the Pharisees and the soldiers and the crowds and even the disciples misunderstood this event, this monarch would rule not for a measly 60 years or so. This monarch would rule and will rule for all eternity. So how did it happen? How did it happen? How did they all miss the event so horribly? Everybody had different expectations of what Jesus came to do when he approached Jerusalem on that day 2,000 years ago. And so now over the next week, over this Passion Week, we're going to be looking at the way that people failed to recognize Jesus, the Messiah. And we'll also look at the way that we also to this day fail to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. So this morning, we're going to see how the Romans didn't recognize his mission. We're going to see how the Pharisees didn't recognize true ministry. And we're going to see how the people didn't recognize this moment. So we're focusing here on Luke chapter 19. I'll be looking at the other Gospels as well, drawing heavily also on John chapter 12. So please look in your Bible here in Roman, or sorry, in, in Luke chapter 19 and starting with, with verse 28. We see first of all in verses 30 and 31 that Jesus told two of his disciples to go into the village in front of them and to get a donkey and to bring it to him. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing even if the disciples didn't. He told them to say to any who asked them, the Lord has need of it. And it happened is exactly how Jesus said it would. So they, they brought the donkey to Jesus 
and they put their cloaks on it, and Jesus mounted it and began to head for the city. And as they approached the city, the people threw their cloaks on the ground and, 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 and sang praises to him. Now, this was the, the customary method by which a king was to be received. And we read about that in the Old Testament. And John says that the people took palm branches and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So there was a degree to which they knew something special was happening here, but they had no idea. They had no idea of the significance of what was really taking place. But what do you think the Roman soldiers thought about all this? What do you think the Roman soldiers who were were there garrisoned in the city of Jerusalem thought about this, this, this humble person coming in riding on a donkey and people shouting praises to the king of Israel? After all, this was an occupying army. They had come from Rome and they were there occupying enemy territory from their perspective, and they were hated vehemently by the Jews. They would have been wary of any form of uprising, and this was a particularly volatile time because, as I said, the city was full of pilgrims from all over the nation had come, who had come to Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. Now, there had been a history of Jewish revolts against the Romans, and this time was no different. Kostenberger explains that that when the people waved palm branches, it was actually a symbol of Jewish nationalism. It was as though the, the, the people were waving Jewish flags in the very face of the Roman soldiers. You see, palm branches were a symbol of the Maccabean revolt that had happened about 200 years prior. When, when the, the Maccabees ousted the Syrians... They, they brought palm branches and waved palm branches at the, at the rededication of the temple. So palm branches were a symbol of nationalistic pride. Now the Jewish historian Josephus reports that Pontius Pilate, who had just recently become procurator of Judea by the Roman emperor Tiberius, had just recently enraged the Jews by taking temple money and using the temple money in order to pay for an aqueduct to go into the city. Josephus reports that tens of thousands of Jews rebelled against Pilate and the Romans and that Pilate ordered the soldiers to crush the rebellion. And so many, many people were killed and many more injured. This happened just before the events that we read about today. So there at that place, at the the time of the triumphal entry, the Roman soldiers would have been tense. The tension would have been palpable. As Jesus approached, the soldiers would have likely gripped the, the hilts of their swords more tightly as the chanting of the crowd rose to a fever pitch. Sure, Jesus didn't look like much of a threat coming in there on a donkey, but if, if Jesus was to become a rallying point for, Jew, for Jewish nationalism, there would be bloodshed. And it's very likely, almost certain, that those Roman soldiers would have heard of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. They might have disbelieved it, but they knew that the people believed it, and so that this made this a very dangerous time for them. 
So Jesus coming into the city with his donkey and his, his ragtag band of followers might not have looked like much. But they didn't recognize his mission. He wasn't coming to conquer physical armies. In an earthly sense, he was going to allow himself to be conquered by this physical army, at least for a time. But he came to destroy something that was far more powerful than this Roman army. He came to destroy something that was far more powerful than any army. Jesus didn't come into the city riding on a war horse. Don Carson explains that, that this would have, would have whipped the crowd into a, uh, into a frenzy with their political aspirations. Jesus chose to represent himself as a king who comes in peace. This was a direct fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. He chose the donkey on purpose. He was very intentional. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a, coat, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The donkey represented humility, it represented peace. In Zechariah 9.10, the Lord says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. The Romans would not have understood this. They didn't understand that Jesus was not coming at that time to establish an earthly kingdom. He was establishing an eternal heavenly kingdom. So the Romans didn't recognize his mission. But what about you? Do you recognize his mission? Do you see Jesus as a threat to your occupation? Let me explain what I mean. The Romans occupied Jerusalem, but it wasn't theirs. It wasn't theirs. Jerusalem and, and the nation had been given to Israel, the people of Israel, by God. It'd be given to them by God. And it would not be very long before the Romans would be ousted. Now, throughout the centuries, army after army, conqueror after conqueror, has come into this, this little city that, from a human perspective, really isn't very much. But there is a time that Jesus will come back. He will come back. And he will not then come riding on a donkey. When he sets foot on the Mount of Olives, the mountain will be split in two. And he will come into the city then as a conquering king. But so often, we treat we treat ourselves, we treat God as the Romans treated Jerusalem. We act as though it's our own. We act as though, as though we are the rightful kings. But we're just usurpers, just like the Romans when we do this. Your body is not your own. 
The resources that you have are not your own. The life that you live is not your own. Every cell, every breath of your lungs, every beat of your heart belongs to God. If you're not living for him, you're just like those Roman soldiers living in rebellion against him. Prior to the, to the, the other rebellion that I was telling, telling you about, Pilate had brought the Roman soldiers into the city carrying the, the pagan idols of emperor worship. And this also enraged the Jews. But how often do we bring idols into our body through, as, as John Bunyan talks about, the eye gate and the ear gate? So often we rebel. We rebel against God by our actions. Even those who, who claim to be Christians rebel against God. Even those who truly are Christians rebel against God. But one day, one day all usurpers will be crushed. It is only those who surrender willingly to the king now who will be a part of his final conquest. Those who are truly born again will one day wave palm branches in very similar fashion to the way that, that the Jews did on that day 2,000 years ago. But this time, the rejoicing will last for all eternity. Turn, please, in your Bible to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Revelation 7, 9 and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the events of that day 2,000 years ago prefigure events that are going to take place sometime in the future very possibly in the near future, when the nations will gather around the Lamb who was slain, and we will wave palm branches, and we will rejoice, saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Those will be our words, brothers and sisters, as we rejoice for all eternity in the presence of Christ. But if the Romans didn't understand and didn't recognize Jesus and his mission, neither did the Pharisees recognize true ministry. A few days before these events, Jesus had shocked everybody by performing what had been to date his most powerful miracle. Sure, he had cast out demons and, and healed the blind and leprosy and and. And, had done, and given, fed 4,000 and 5,000. He even raised a few people from the dead. But this event was different. This event was different. Turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verse 1. We read, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, of the village of, the village of, from the village of Mary and her sister Martha. 
And then verses 5 and 6, we read, Now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Okay, now that doesn't make much sense. He loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, so he stayed two days longer. He loved, then so he waited. It was a full four days after the death of Lazarus that Jesus finally arrived at the tomb. And we know what happens then. Jesus commands, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb, grave grave clothes and all, just as alive as he was on the day that he was born. And the Pharisees didn't know what to do with this. They didn't know what to do with it. So they gathered together to plot against Jesus. Because what was happening now is is there was a lot more people who had heard about this miracle and they were all leaving what the Pharisees called religion and following after Jesus and his religion. And as I mentioned earlier, they even plotted to kill Lazarus in order to hide the evidence. But then in in Luke 19.37, we read, As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So more and more people were claiming to believe in Jesus. And they were saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Matthew 21, 19 adds, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, Hosanna literally means give salvation now. Please, God, give salvation now. It was a cry of praise. And as we'll see this Friday, this cry of praise was short-lived. But at this moment, the Pharisees saw Jesus as a threat. They saw him as a threat to their rule. So they told Jesus to silence the disciples. In verse 40, Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Two disciples of Jesus cannot but help to sing praises to God. And all of creation, the Bible tells us, groans, waiting for his creation to be renewed when he comes back. If the Pharisees had truly known God themselves, they would have delighted to hear the praises of Jesus. I know there there are a few things that give me greater joy when when I hear people who know and love Jesus singing out of the the, the joy that comes from their hearts. But the Pharisees didn't recognize true ministry. They didn't recognize it. They didn't know what true worship looked like. To the Pharisees, this was a sign of their failure to serve the people, and it was a sign of their failure to serve God. Now, Jesus had confronted the Pharisees on every possible occasion. He had shown them that they had totally misunderstood the law and that they had both legalistically tried to use it in order to use a right standing before God and that they had added to it with a a complex system of man-made rules. 
However, with the raising of Lazarus from the dead just a few days prior, it all came to a head. In John 11, 47 and 48, we read that when the Pharisees and the chief priests found out about it, they gathered the council together and they said, what are we going to do? Because this man performs many signs, if we let him go on like this, everyone is going to believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were worried about their position. And they didn't understand that the true king was going to come not just for this particular nation, but for his own in the entire world. But one of them understood. One of them understood, even though he didn't understand that he understood. Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, rebuked the others, saying, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. He did not say that it was of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So you see what happened there. Caiaphas, who was the high priest actually prophesied. This was a man who was an enemy of the one true God. But he actually prophesied a true prophecy. When he said that it is better for one man to die, he was thinking from a human perspective that Jesus would die in order to to give them, them peace with the Romans and that they could keep their place. But what was really happening is that this one man was going to die for his sheep. And not only his sheep in Israel, but his sheep who are scattered abroad, his sheep around the world. And beloved, that includes you and me. But there in Luke 19, verses 45 to 48, we see that, that Jesus went into the temple and drove out those who sold who sold doves and sold sheep. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. You see, by allowing the merchants into the temple, the the Pharisees had been complicit in their sin. They had turned the worship of God into a financial exercise. As the people sold animals that were to be used for sacrifices. As Don Carson explains, instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there is noisy commerce. Then over the next few days, Jesus taught them openly in the temple. And the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people wanted to put him to death, but they couldn't because they saw that the people were hanging on his every word. And they knew that if they were to try something against Jesus at this moment, that quickly the anger of the crowd would be turned against them. So they bided their time. As I said, it all came to a head. Jesus and the Pharisees had never been allies But now there was open animosity between Jesus and the Pharisees. The gloves were off. And right there in the very temple, he exposed their hypocrisy. 
saying, as we read in Matthew 23, verses 2 and 3, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. In verse 4, he criticized their failure to help others, saying they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. In verse 13, he showed that they don't help people to get to heaven, and they don't even know how to get there themselves. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would, who would go in to enter. In verse 14, he showed, he just, he showed their greed and their, out, their pretext of religion, saying, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You devour widows' houses and make for a pretense long prayers. Therefore, you shall receive the greater condemnation. In verse 15, he condemned their fruitless ministry, saying, Woe to you, scribes and heresies, for you, scribes and Pharisees, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. When he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you yourselves. If they wanted him dead before, they really wanted him dead now. Because the Pharisees did not have a clue what real ministry was all about. But what about you? Do you understand? Do you recognize true ministry? There are times that, that I have gone to somebody to talk to them about their sin. And they have been so focused on me that they have failed to look at their sin themselves. And they'll get angry when I'm actually doing the loving thing. The person who loves you the most is the person who tells you the most truth. But we don't recognize that. We don't recognize it. We want everything to be lovey-dovey. We want people who are going to tickle our ears. We want messages from the pulpit that are, are comfortable and la-di-da. But if you are hoping in anything other than the, the cross of Christ for your salvation, you had better come away from a sermon convicted. Because if you don't, you're going to come before Jesus condemned. So the Pharisees didn't recognize true ministry. But ministry is not just for pastors. We're all called to serve God by serving others. The Pharisees legalistically relied on their own supposed righteousness and added all kinds of rules that were not in God's word. We do this too when we try to earn points with God through our outward obedience. Rather than trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross, we do this too when we go beyond what God's word teaches in principle or precept. The Pharisees told people to live by standards that they didn't and couldn't live up to themselves, and neither could their hearers. We do that too when we place standards on others that we don't hold for ourselves, and when we fail to offer grace, 
when others fail to live up to those standards. The Pharisees were greedy for financial gain and the applause of men. We do that too when we live for any other reward than the cross, than, than what, what Christ afforded us on the cross. The Pharisees were zealous to convert people to their form of religion, but it was a religion that couldn't save. And we do this too when we try to convert people to a Western idea of Christianity that does not in any way reflect what the Bible calls Christianity. But just as the, as the Pharisees and the Romans didn't recognize Jesus, the people didn't recognize him either. They didn't recognize this moment. In Luke 19.41, we read that as Jesus approached the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Jesus at that time was a beautiful city. Its skyline was dominated by the magnificent temple. But not today. When you look across the Kidron Valley, you can see there the wall of Jerusalem. You can see the eastern wall. You can see the very gate, the temple gate called Beautiful, that Jesus entered into on that day, but it has been walled up. And that there's a Muslim cemetery right there at the very base of that wall. And once where the beautiful temple was, there's now a, a, a grotesque mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, covered in gold, right there on the spot where the temple was supposed to be. So what happened? What happened between the events of Jesus' day and our day that caused the temple to be raised to the ground? How could God allow such a thing? It was because the people did not recognize this moment. They did not realize that King Jesus, God the Son, was coming into their midst. That he had arrived to bring peace, not just to, not just to oust the Roman soldiers. He had come to bring peace between God and man. But the people rejected that peace. So Jesus said in verse 43, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon the other in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And these events were fulfilled in A.D. 70 when after a failed rebellion of the Jews against the Romans, the emperor, uh, sorry, the, the general Titus pressed forward a siege against the city. And what happened was at the Passover, he allowed pilgrims to enter the city, but then he didn't let them out. And he cut off their food and water supply. And the people started to grow weak and desperate. And then the Roman soldiers went in and raised the city. They pulled the temple down to the ground. It happened just as Jesus had said it would. 
And all that is left of the Temple Mount is the Western Wall, what, what we refer to today as the Wailing Wall. That's all that's left. Because the people didn't know the time of their visitation. They didn't know that Jesus had come to deliver them, not from Roman conquerors, but from the power of sin. He had come to deliver them from the wrath of God. But what about you? Do you recognize this moment? Not just the moment that took place 2,000 years ago, but do you recognize this moment? The Apostle Paul quoted Isaiah 49.8 in 2 Corinthians 6.2 when he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of visitation I have helped you. Paul continues, Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. People, now is the day of salvation. Now. There are people in this room who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. They don't recognize him as the King of Kings. But one day, one day Jesus is going to return. One day, no Muslim cemetery or walled-up gate is going to hinder his progress as he comes from the Mount of Olives and takes his place in the holy city. Are you trying to block Jesus from entering into your heart because of your sin? Are you more focused on the things of this world than on serving Jesus as your King of Kings? Are you bowing the knee to him willingly, gladly, joyfully? Is Jesus the king of your heart? Let's pray together.